Thank you, my friend. My text for this morning comes from the book of Acts. I'm reading from the first chapter, begin with the first verse and, and following. St. Luke is, is writing. In my former book, he's referring back to the Gospel of Luke, writing to a friend of his, Theophilus. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to, to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Do you all believe Jesus is alive? Has he ever appeared to you? Have you ever experienced the presence of the living Lord? I did a funeral yesterday for a lady, and, and I spoke about the presence of the living Lord, and her background was in Ireland. Her family's roots are all in Ireland, and I've done a lot of ministry over the year, Becky and I have numerous times, been there to, to work with the Anglican priests and bishops, the lay people there to encourage the work of the gospel in, in the land of St. Patrick. And, and one of the places I talked about was thin places, thin places. The Irish speak about thin places, places where the presence of God is almost palpable. You know, you talk about things like that in, in this country and people laugh at you. I think it's about myths and legends and leprechauns and pixie dust and all the rest of that. But I've experienced the presence of the risen Lord lots of times. And most often, most often, when I'm standing and praying with someone who's on death's doorstep and they're about to make a transition from this world to the next, and, and the Holy Spirit's presence is just overwhelming, just overwhelming. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and Luke is recalling for the disciples, after he was crucified and rose again, he appeared to you. He was, he was there. You could feel him. You, know, you could touch him. He was right there. And then he goes on to say, on one occasion... While he was eating with you, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but, but wait for the gift, of my father, the gift that my father promised, which, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then the disciples gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to him, not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you're going to receive power. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the, to the ends of the earth. Then after Jesus said this to his disciples, that they're on the Mount of Olives, he was taken up before them. He ascended up into heaven right before their eyes. And a cloud hit him, hit him from their sight. They're all there looking up, you know. While they were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Angels. Angels appear. And the angels speak to him. Men of Galilee, they said, 
Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he's going to come back again. And he's going to come back again in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. You believe Jesus is coming back again? The book says he is. I believe he is. I'll speak about that in a minute too. This is the word of the Lord. And for that we say thanks be to God, don't we? Yeah. Heavenly Father, I pray you unpack this passage for us that, that though, the, though the words were written thousands of years ago, that, that they would come to us alive. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, that they would, would come into our heads and, and into our hearts and, and they would give rise to, to language and, and actions on our part that bring the world to you. Come, Lord Jesus, in your name, I do pray it. Amen and amen. My father's parents were born during the, the era of, of, econ, of Reconstruction in the South following the, the Civil War. A phrase for life back then was root hog or die. See, there weren't any of the social programs that we have today, and there was no kind of safety net. And so every, every day was a, was a battle for survival. Their children, that'd be my father and his four sisters, they were steeped in that work ethic steeped in it, part and parcel of who they were. And it's a good thing. Because see, if the family hadn't, hadn't pulled together, there would have been no way that they could have endured the, the economic hardships that, that accompanied World War I and, and the Great Depression. Now, now, I say that to say this. My father had been through a lot by the time he was commissioned as a naval officer in, in 1939. But even though he had been through a lot, nothing that he had been through prepared him for that Sunday morning two years later when he became a man. See. Witnessing his shipmates being blown apart during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor suddenly confronted him with the shortness and uncertainty of life. Watching the tide wash the dead bodies of sailors from the decks of their sunken ships made him brutally aware of the value of time. And it caused him to begin to look with, with disdain on anybody who, who procrastinated. Indeed, on December the 7th of 1941, my father made the connection that foreshadowed the rest of his life. Time and the tide never stand still, and neither should we. Life is too precious to waste. My father instilled that same sense of urgency, and, and may I say I'm thankful for that gift. But here's the thing, friends. 
unlike time and the tide, we are not being swept along by forces over which we have no control. We're free agents. We have the capacity to make choices. And we make choices each and every day. And, and, and sometimes our choices are good and, and, and sometimes, sometimes they're not. Life is always moving, my friends. But we choose the direction. In the 1920s, Ralph Barton was the, the best known and highest paid cartoonist in America. But in 1931, just days before his 40th birthday, he took his own life. He left this note. I have run from wife to wife, from house to house, from country to country, in a ridiculous effort to escape from myself. I've caused a great deal of unhappiness to those who have loved me. No one is responsible for this except myself. I'm fed up with inventing devices for getting through 24 hours every day. Tragic. But the consequences of his choices. Reigning as King of England when Ralph, when Ralph Barton took his life was King George V. In his desk, King George V kept this note written in his own hand. I shall pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that I can do or any kindness I can show to any human being, let me do it now. Let me not defer nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Ralph Barton and King George V. Two notes, two choices. Life is always moving, my friends, but we choose the direction. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned his followers and, and he said this to them, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the ages. And then and then right after Jesus ascended, his followers are standing there on the, on the Mount of Olives, and they're, they look up into the clouds, you know, and then the angels come. And the angels ask him a question. Why do you stand here looking up in the sky? Now this morning, I hear the angels challenging us with that same question, challenging you and challenging me. And in essence, I hear the angels, the angels saying to us, why are you standing still? Time and the gospel wait for no one, and neither, neither should the gospel. Time and the tide are moving on. We've got to do something with the gospel. I hear the angels saying the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection has got to be told. And when you were baptized, when you became a member of the family of God, when you started running with us here at the Church of the Cross, in essence, you made a commitment. 
you made a commitment to proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ. And I hear the angel saying to us today that we need to get on the stick. We need to get with it. Time is too valuable to waste. Life's always moving, friends, and because God created it that way, it's, it's impossible for his children, his true children, to stand still. In, in, fact, in fact, God expects us to be climbing, climbing the holy hill of the Lord, drawing ever nearer to him. The psalmist speaks to this in the 24th Psalm. Listen, listen to his words in the 3rd and 4th verse. He says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? See, he understands. Everybody's supposed to be climbing. We're supposed to be getting closer and closer to the Lord. It's like we're here and he's there. We're going to be climbing this hill. Who's going to be able to climb it? Who's going to be successful? Who's going to be able to stand in that holy place? And then he answers the question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or, or swear by what's false. You know, friends, you, you simply can't stand still and at the same time develop a, a pure heart and, and develop God-honoring solid habits. You just can't, you can't do it. You've got to work at it. Those things don't come naturally. You've got to work at it. And the neat thing about our faith is our faith promises, promises that God the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the power of his Holy Spirit is going to be with us as we're striving to climb that holy hill. And who is that God? Who is that God? He's the loving Father who rushes down the road to welcome a wayward son who's coming home. Who is that God? He's the generous employer that pays those fellows who have worked just a few hours, pays them a whole day's wages. Who is that God? He's the good Samaritan who stops and takes time to take care of a battered traveler left to be by the side of the road to die by, by a band of robbers. That's the God. That's the God who is here with us. That's the God who is encouraging us to, to keep climbing, climbing, climbing that holy hill. Why? So that we might experience life in all of its abundance. Friends, we need to understand that God did not create us to just be nice people. He didn't create us to just be decent folks who make their mortgage payments on time. No, see. We're supposed to be reaching, and we're supposed to be risking for our own good and for God's greater glory. Now, we've been working together. I've been ministering in this little patch for almost three decades now. And you know what's happened? Over the course of those three, rec of those three decades, I've, I've, I've come to realize that many of us are settling for a minimal response to our baptismal covenants. 
oh, we're not standing still. We're, we're climbing. But the truth is, we are just crawling up God's holy hill because we're not using all of our God-given potential. Sociologists have validated this. They've done all kinds of studies. And you know what they've determined? They've determined that most people go through life using only 10% of their potential. Only 10%. How much of your potential are you using? Are you in the, the group of folks who are just using 10% and and in the great scheme of things, a fair appraisal would be that they're just, that they're just crawling through life. Life's always moving, my friends, but, but we choose the direction, and we have something to say about our speed as well. If we're, if we're to experience life in, at its fullest and deepest level, the truth is we've got to get down to some serious climbing. Now, that word climbing implies uphill, doesn't it? So we shouldn't expect it to be easy, should we? No. I've had the great privilege of traveling to England numerous times, and one of the places I'd like to go to is Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral, and other places there. Many of England's greatest heroes are buried in Westminster Abbey. Among them is David Livingstone. He was the man who opened up the continent of Africa for Christian missionaries in the mid-1800s. He once received a letter from the London Missionary Society assuring him that there were, there were many folks in England who were, were ready to, to volunteer to come down to Africa to help him. But first they wanted to know if there were easy access roads to get to the interior of Africa where he was working, see. Livingston wrote this word, note back to him. He said, if you have men who will come only if there are good roads, I don't want them. I want men who will come even if there's no road at all. We've got to keep on climbing. We've got to keep on climbing God's holy hill. Life's always moving. Life's always moving, but we choose the direction. It's said that, that gray hair is a sign of age. Looking at y'all, many of you are a lot older than me. A lot older than me. <laughs> And, and if you are, I'll bet that your parents and grandparents were like mine. They willingly denied themselves to provide the necessities for their families. See, see they, they believed that with a strong faith in God and a good education, their children could have rewarding futures. It seemed to me that that, that ethic of self-denial 
that those two generations espoused for us. It, seems, it, just, it just seems to be that, that that's disappeared in our time. I think self-denial has disappeared and it's been replaced. It's been replaced by this emphasis on self-fulfillment. On short-term satisfaction rather than long-term objectives. On consuming rather than producing. On living in the present with no regard for the future. See, sadly, friends, too often these days, life is, it's all about ourselves. All about ourselves. And, and, And yet Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must indulge himself. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that, does it? No. Well, then why are we living like that? It doesn't say that. It says he must deny himself. He's got to take up his cross. He's got to get on that, on that road of striving and climbing God's holy hill. Jesus is saying, you've got to follow me. That's what I did. And then Jesus also said that the greatness is found in serving others. Look at the text. If anyone wants to be first, he must stab other people in the back and climb over them to get to the top of the pile. Now, see, we laugh, but I'm just telling you that's what I see people doing. That's what I see. How many people do you know, including yourself, including yourself, who understands that if I, if I want to be first in the kingdom of God, I've got to humble myself to the point that, that I'm like the very last. If I want to climb that holy hill, that the way I do it is by serving others and not myself. Many of us go grow through life like we're at some kind of buffet. We want to knock other people out of the way so we can get first in line and pile the plate up. See, see the see the contrast, my friends. See the contrast. The world is pulling us down to hedonism, while while Jesus is urging us to climb God's holy hill to godliness. And, and here's, here's the thing, see. We've got a choice to make. You can't stand still. You're going down, you're going up. You're following the world, or you're following the Lord. Are you climbing the holy hill, or are you on your way to hell? We can't stand still. No middle ground. I suggest to you that they ought to keep on climbing. I'm going to close with a, a true story and, and then a final thought. Clarence Jordan was born in rural Georgia in 1912. He, he dreamed dreamed of improving the life of sharecroppers. Folks like my grandparents, they had to 
drop out of school. When they were in the fourth grade to go to work in the fields, their parents were sharecroppers. Well, Clarence Jordan had this vision for helping people like that. By improving their ability to make a living off the land, by teaching them scientific farming techniques. While Jordan was studying agriculture at the University of Jordan, of Georgia, he, he became convinced that the roots of, po of poverty were spiritual as well as economic. Now, that insight took him to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he earned a second PhD in 1938. And then in 1942, Clarence Jordan and his wife, they, they came back to Georgia. They came back believing that if you're going to be an authentic disciple of Jesus, then you've got to take Jesus seriously. You've got to dig into his words and find out what that message is all about. And then you've got to incorporate that message into your daily lives. Jordan and his wife bought a 440-acre tract of land. They, they were intent on creating an interracial Christian farming community. But as the civil rights movement was, was gaining momentum, strong resistance arose to Clarence Jordan and his farm. Strong resistance. For 14 years, Clarence Jordan was relentlessly opposed by the Ku Klux Klan. Finally, in 1964, the Klan decided to make one final push to get rid of Clarence Jordan and his farm. They came during the night with guns and torches. They burned to the ground every building on the farm except for one. And that was the home where Clarence Jordan and his wife lived. Instead of burning that to the ground, they tried to destroy it with bullets and shotgun blasts. Now, during that raid, Clarence Jordan recognized the voice of one of the Klansmen. Recognized the voice as being the voice of a reporter for the local newspaper. The next morning, with everything that he had built, smoking in ruins, Clarence Jordan returned to the fields. Started hoeing the ground and planting seeds. The reporter, whose voice Clarence Jordan had recognized the night before, Jordan looked up and saw that reporter walking out into the field. The reporter was coming to interview him. And here's what the reporter said when he got to Jordan. He said, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night, and I've come out to do a story on the closing of your farm. Clarence Jordan just kept on hoeing and, and planting. 
But that reporter kept on probing. He kept on asking questions. He kept on prodding Clarence Jordan, trying, trying to get a response from this gentle man who, who was planting when most people would have been, would have been packing. Finally, the, the reporter said in a condescending voice, he, he said, well, Dr. Jordan, you've got two PhDs and you have poured 22 years of your life into this farm. And now there's nothing at all left of it. Just how successful do you think you've been? With that, Clarence Jordan put on his hoe. He looked at the reporter with a, with a penetrating gaze. And he said with firmness, Sir, I don't think you understand us Christians. What we're about is not success. What we're about is faithfulness. You hear it? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. We're not about success, we're about faith. What are you about? Which ranks higher in your priorities? Success or faithfulness? The world's being pulled down by that difference in definitions. The world's all about success. Jesus ain't climb that holy hill. Climb that holy hill to faithfulness. Listen again to the, the last verse of my text for today, the 11th verse of that, of that book of Acts. Now again, the, apostles, the disciples are standing there on the top of Mount of Olives. The angels are speaking to them. And why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back again in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Now again, I want you to hear the angels speaking to us this morning. Hear what the angels are saying? They're saying that Jesus is coming back again. Who'd have believed it? He went up, he's coming back. And then, if we read in St. Paul's second letter to his friend Timothy, fourth chapter, first verse, we're told there what Jesus is going to do when he comes back again. He's going to judge the living and the dead. That's me and you, friends. He's going to come back again, and he's going to judge us. And what's he going to judge us on? See? I think he's going to judge us on whether or not we have been faithful. Whether or not we've, we've been doing what Jesus asked us to do when he ascended into heaven. Now, we know Jesus is coming back again. But here's the thing, we don't know when he's coming. Might be next week. Maybe next month. Could be, could be next year. We, we just don't know. But the thing is, we got to be ready when he comes, don't we? Now that tells me that there's no time for us to be standing still. It tells me we got to pick up the pace. 
crawling will not get the job done. And now they're, well, a 10% effort, see. There's a gospel that has to be, has to be proclaimed. People need to know about the life and the death and the resurrection and the coming again of Jesus. There are folks that need to be baptized and taught to obey God's commandments, see? And here's the thing. Jesus expects us to do it. Not the fellows that were living 2,000 years. He's expecting me and you to do that. And he's going to hold us accountable for it when he comes again. We can't let the world pull us down. Can't let the world pull us down. We've got to keep on climbing that holy hill for our sakes and for the sakes of all the people who are on a fast track to hell. We've got to keep climbing. Somewhere I found this, this prayer of commitment, and I commend it to you. It's meant a lot to me over, over the years. Perhaps it'll speak to you in some way. Jesus Christ, be in my head, in my thinking, in my eyes, in my saying, in my ears, in my hearing, in my mouth, in my speaking, in my heart, in my heart, in my feeling, in my hands and my feet, in my doing. I commit myself to you. Body, mind, and soul. The whole package. And I ask, I pray that this day and always, everything that I do, every part of my being will honor you. See, that's the commitment that Jesus is looking for. That's the commitment. And only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we pull it off. But see, the promise of Scripture is God's with us. The Holy Spirit is right there. Urge us on, urge us on to keep on climbing that holy hill. And you know the good news? Lots of y'all are right there with me climbing that holy hill. And I thank you for that. If you're not climbing, I invite you to join us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, without... Without naming names or pointing fingers or anything else like that, you know and we know that most of us are just doing enough to get by. We want to be, we want to be known as your children. We want to be, be seen as being faithful. But the truth is we want to cut every corner that we can to slide in. We don't want to go in standing up. We just, want to, we just want to have somebody grease the wheel so we can get through the gate. 
10% of our effort is being put into being a child of yours. What if, what if we really bore down it was 20%? That'd be double. What a difference we could make in the world. What if it was 50%? What if we all gave 100% of our God-given potential to grow in your kingdom? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Lord, I see you sometimes up in heaven, you're looking at us, and you're just weeping for us. Because you see how little we're doing and, and how much we're missing. Come, Holy Spirit, let us look in our own mirrors. In our own mirrors. And ask ourselves honestly, how committed are we? And what might we do to bridge that gap between, between the world pulling us down and, and your call to climb the holy hill? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we do pray it. Amen and, and amen. Let's stand in response to the hearing of the word.